about 16 or 17 years ago now, uh, I was on the process of searching for a college. You've probably been through that process, some of you, and some of you are maybe in that process right now or will be facing that process at some point in the future. A buddy and I decided to go look up at St. Cloud State in Minnesota. I lived in Alden, Minnesota, and so my buddy and I drove up to St. Cloud to check out that college. We had to get there early in the morning, so we arrived about 7 or 7.30. And as we're driving into St. Cloud, we're just driving by all these college houses lined up. My buddy looks over, and there's this group of students walking out of one of the house. And each of the students walking out of the house has a 12-pack of beverage. You can take your mind wherever you want from there. It's 7 a.m. in the morning. My buddy looks at me and just basically says, this is the place for us. <laughs> we meet that day, go through our tour, and as we're going through our tour, my buddy is just like, hey, we're the only guys in the group. There are a lot of ladies here. This is the place for us. And obviously those ladies are really interested in us, so that was making it difficult as well. Well, a couple of weeks later, as the college search was going on, I came out here to Sioux Falls, and I visited the University of Sioux Falls. And as I was visiting the University of Sioux Falls, I can't remember the individual's name, but I, I think I got the worst campus tour guide that you could possibly have. We were in the middle of the campus tour, and next thing you know, we're in the bowels of the library. There's about one person in the whole place, and we get down to the bottom of the library, and I'm thinking, what are we doing down here? We get down there, and there's this little professor sitting in the corner, small, everything you think of a college professor is this guy. So we pull up and there's this guy, Dr. Rourke, just sitting over in the corner. We pull up and the tour guide asks us to gather around Dr. Rourke. Dr. Rourke is a math professor, is maybe one of the smartest men, went to MIT, did a lot of computer programming, probably should have stuck with computer programming and all of that behind the scenes math stuff. And so anyway, sitting down here and we sit down at this table with this professor, and it was just kind of awkward. And the tour guy's like, yeah, this is one of the greatest spots on campus. You come here, and, and you get some help with your math and your physics, and, and, and there's just a lot of people that come here, and there's no one there at all. And this is the tour, I'm thinking, oh, wow, this place needs some work. So I left campus tour that day thinking, <laughs> let's see here, 7 a.m., St. Cloud, Minnesota, or... Middle of the afternoon, Dr. Rourke in the basement of the library. You can imagine the predicament. Some of you have probably been in a predicament like that before, and you're just thinking, what's the plan? God, what am I supposed to do? Maybe you haven't been in the college predicament, but you've been in another predicament like that, where you're looking for any sign possible. You're looking at anything as though, yes, that, that must mean I'm supposed to do this, or I'm supposed to do that. Maybe you find yourself in the middle of that predicament all of the time where you're just asking yourself, what's God's plan? What am I supposed to do right here, right now? In the midst of that process of trying to determine what God's plan is, stress begins to build up. Anxiety begins to build up. Because on one hand, you want to honor God. On the other hand, you just want clarity. And then on the other hand, you're just sitting in the middle of muck not knowing which direction to go. So what do you do? What's God's plan? All of those who call on the name of Jesus have probably at some point and on a regular basis are interested in this question. What's God's plan? For the next couple of weeks, we want to dive in and we want to understand what is God's plan for our lives. 
And what makes the question even more difficult is when certain, certain things begin to happen in our lives, particularly bad things. So when bad things begin to happen in our lives, then other questions begin to rise up. Well, is this God's plan that I would have to go through this? Is this God's plan that I would end up losing this or, or that? Well, if this is God's plan, I, I'm not too interested in God's plan. And then, then to confuse matters worse, people say stuff to us, right? And people say stuff in the middle of the bad stuff. Don't worry, God has a plan. And you're in the middle of the bad stuff, and you're thinking, well, is this the plan? And doubts begin to arise. It's a challenge enough to determine God's plan. You throw bad stuff in the mix, and now what? You don't know if that is bad, that's God's plan, or what, da 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 You just don't know where you're at. Well, the next couple of weeks, we want to sort through that. And so that we don't have this rising anxiety or stress, but rather we have clarity and confidence. Clarity and confidence to step forward in a way that honors God. We've got two simple goals over the next four weeks. Normally I don't do this, but this is kind of like college class. I said boring this morning. We've got two goals over the next four weeks. The first goal is this. I want everybody in this room to have picture-perfect clarity on God's overarching plan for your life. I want everybody to have picture-perfect clarity on God's overarching plan for your life. After the next four weeks, everybody should be able to leave here and you should be able to write in a sentence or two, what is God's plan for your life? In other words, I'm going to call this kind of the macro vision. Our priority is to understand what is the big picture of what God wants in our lives. So that's goal number one. Goal number two is that you and I would have an understanding of how to navigate life's decisions where God has not revealed clarity in His Word. So a lot of people, again, anxiety and stress when trying to make a decision where there's nothing about it in the Bible at all. And you still want to honor God. And so you use language like God's will, God's plan. Over the next couple of weeks, we want to unpack, well, how should we navigate those circumstances? Very simply put, what do we do in life when God's will is not clear? I'm going to call this the micro. So we want to talk about life's individual circumstances. So we want to understand God's macro, the overarching life purpose, and then we want to get into the micro, how do we navigate the daily circumstances in our lives. And that's why we turn to Romans chapter 8 this morning, maybe one of the most, if not the most famous Bible passage that there is, turn to a lot. It's got a lot of truth packed into it. It's going to help us understand the macro, the overarching vision of God for our lives. And so as we pursue God's plan in our lives, we better know what does God what has God planned for our lives. If you have Romans chapter 8 open, let's read Romans 8, 28 through 30, just to kind of remind ourselves. Romans 8. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Stop right there. This is just packed with so much stuff here in Romans chapter 8. And as we try to understand the plan of God, we have to start here first and say this. There is an amazing amount of mystery. 
this morning, some of you are going to get rubbed a little bit the wrong way. Because we're going to look at some words, we're going to look at some concepts that most people don't like. And in particular, most Americans just despise. And so be prepared to, to want to throw some tomatoes this morning. Be prepared to say, oh, Pastor, I can't believe that. And I won't believe that. Just be prepared for that. And we have to recognize as we look at some of this difficult stuff that there is an amazing amount of mystery. And so here's what we've got to do. Where God's Word speaks, we have to let it speak. And where God's Word is silent, we have to let it be silent. We're not very good at this because we like to have it mapped out clearly. And so then what we begin to do is we begin to try and work it out logically, which does not work out in the Christian teaching. Because the moment you try and work it out logically, the Christian teaching begins to crumble. Because the foundation of Christianity is not logical. The foundation of Christianity is that there is a God who left heaven and was some sort of being up there and then came and was born through a woman who was a virgin and this being who previously existed now magically came as a human being. You can't logically work that out. There's no scientific process. There's no hypothesis to set up and try and prove or to negate. Christianity is not built on logic. And so I want to remind us this morning, where God's Word speaks, let it speak. Where it is silent, let it be silent. And as we think about God's mystery in all of this, we also have to remind ourselves that if we look at Romans 8, Romans 8 is not a textbook. The Apostle Paul wasn't writing Romans 8 going, okay, I want to give everybody clarity of understanding today around these concepts. Paul was writing Romans 8 saying, I want to encourage people. These people are suffering right now. There's people about ready to die for the gospel. I've got to give them a word that's going to make them stand up with courage in the midst of a trial. I've got to bring people a comforting word that's going to allow them to continue to exist rather than crumple in the corner in depression. So Paul's focus is comfort and courage. He's not writing a treatise for us on some of this big, tough stuff. He's just revealing God's truth. And some of it we're like, wish you would have gone into a little more detail. But he doesn't. He just lays it out and says, this is what it is. And then finally, so often in the midst of the mystery, we try to make sense of the bad stuff by explaining God using some of these verses this morning. And we use these verses in a way in which they're not even written. And we'll get to that. Trying to explain God in the midst of bad stuff can be a really bad idea. Because sometimes the explanation is not something that person's going to want to hear. And sometimes there is simply no explanation, but there's simple silence. And so we have to learn to live with God's mystery as we talk about this concept of God's plan. So if you're looking with me in Romans chapter 8, let's dig in there at verse 28. The first thing we see here in verse 28 is this promise. Now, notice what the promise is in verse 28. The promise is, is that God is going to work all things together for our good. Notice what the promise is not. The promise is not that God causes all things. We've got to get this very clear, and I'm walking on thin ice this morning on this portion. But this sentence is even structured in a way that, that God is doing what? Working all things 
together for the good, not God is causing all things, period. No, 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 no. We're working, God is working, using all things for our good. That does not mean that God causes all things. Bad stuff happens. And guess what? Bad stuff is not a blessing in disguise. And let's be frank about that. And I'm going to just yell at you for a moment this morning. Stop it! When something bad happens, don't be like, oh, it was just it was a blessing in disguise. God was doing something in my life. No, stop it! There's bad stuff. There's sin in this world. People kill other people, and God doesn't want that to happen. God did not create humanity to suffer in the midst of cancer. You know, when sin entered the world, what happened was this, is that all of creation entered into this tumble. Everything was broken. It's not God's will. It's not a blessing in disguise that someone can't have a baby. Not at all. It's bad stuff. That's exactly what it is. Now, here's where the promise is. God can work in the midst of that bad stuff. And it's not that God can work, it's that God will work. The promise is that even in the midst of that bad stuff, guess what God's going to do? God's going to bring something good out of it. So, for example, it doesn't always work this way, but, but someone can't have a baby. Again, that's bad stuff. That's heartbreaking. Sometimes what happens there is, is God then brings about what? An adoption where brings together two families that never would have been together. Does that mean that he did the other thing to cause this? Absolutely not. But God can work through that stuff. He says actually he will work through that stuff. So be clear on the promise. The promise is that God is going to work all things together for our good. Now, when I say, when I, when, I, when I, but the Bible, when the Bible says work together for good, don't put your vision of good in place of the Bible's vision for good. Our vision of good is what? Comfort and cool. Who doesn't want to be comfortable? Who doesn't want to be cool? That's not the Bible's vision of good. The Bible's vision of good is this. We're refined to a point where we're trusting in Jesus Christ alone and declaring his praises. That can be with a lot. That can be with a little. That can be comfortable or uncomfortable. But the goodness that's being produced here is something different than what we think is good. Now, can good material blessings come? Absolutely. Absolutely. We see it in the Old Testament that God uses material goods to bless others, but that doesn't mean that every time God is going to do something good, there's material blessings. So the promise is God is going to work all things for our good. Well, what is that good? Let's jump into the next verse then, verse 29, where we see what this good is. We see the plan of God. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Okay, so our good is the plan of God, which was what? Predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. In other words, God's plan is this that His people are conformed to the image of His Son. This is our destiny as Christians. Now, there's some big words here that cause a lot of us to stumble and cause a lot of us to get really uncomfortable really quick. But let's just say what the Bible says here. It says very clearly here that God foreknew. What does that mean? That means that before the creation of the world, God had knowledge 
of where he was going to place his love. Now, some people read this word foreknew, and this is the way they read it. They read it as though God foresaw in advance what people were going to choose. And so then he had knowledge of that, so therefore he predestined those people. Okay, that works, but there's a lot of hopping and skipping to get to that point, and we're missing two big points on that point. First is this, it's not what the word means. And so Paul would have been using the word in a completely different way than used in other places of the Bible. So we'd be taking the word and basically making our own definition of it. Secondly, we're putting God into time in that scenario, when God is outside of time. This is just a really weird concept, and I know now we're back into boring Dr. Rohr college stuff here. So when we say that God foresaw what we were going to do in advance, he's putting himself in time and then pulling himself back out of time to make a decision based upon what he saw in time. God is outside of time. Time is something he created. Okay, so now that you're all really uncomfortable and beginning to wonder, well, what are you saying, Pastor? Not what I'm saying. What God's Word is saying is that before the creation of time, God had a plan of what He was going to do to His people. The plan was this. He was going to conform them to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. Well, Pastor, whoa, 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 slow down. Don't we have a free choice in all of this? Do not we have free will in all of this? Well, that's interesting that you bring that up, because according to Jesus, if left to our own free will, we would be in a heap of trouble, because according to Jesus, we're slaves to sin. Find me an instance where a slave can free themselves. A slave, just again, going by definition, means you're owned by someone else. If you can free yourself, you're not a slave. So Jesus is lying. Wow, wow, past the past. Whoa, 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 whoa. How can it be love if we don't freely choose it? Remember when I started this message about the issue of mystery? Is that there's this element of mystery that God had a plan and he chose what he was going to do, yet at the exact same time, he holds humanity 100% responsible. Okay, logic comes back in here. How do you work that out? You don't work that out. You again lay out God's Word and says, this is what God's Word says. You've been given a destiny. At the same time, you're being held responsible. Don't argue with me. Take it up with Jesus when you get home at lunch. Okay, God's Word is very clear here. He's saying, I've made a choice in advance of what your destiny is going to be. Your destiny, he says here, verse 29 is this, to be conformed to the image of His Son. So what's the promise here? Again, Paul's trying to bring comfort, and he's trying to bring encouragement. The promise is this. Hey, none of the suffering you're going through can touch your destiny. Because remember, the chapter that we're reading in Romans 8 started in verse 18, this little section, by talking about our present sufferings. And so Paul is saying this. He's saying, hey, guess what? Those sufferings you're going through, that's bad stuff. It's not blessing in disguise. That's bad stuff because of sin, because of the principalities of evil and the devil in the world. But guess what? You can still have hope 
You can have hope because guess what? None of that bad stuff can touch your destiny because your destiny is to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And guess what? Nothing can put a dent in that because that destiny is ultimately found in the resurrection, found in verse 30 where it says, your glorification. So God's plan for your life is to conform you to the image of Jesus Christ. Let's break that down really simple. What's God's plan? Be like Jesus. That's what he wants for your life. He wants you to be like Jesus. Your mind right now, I hope, let me train it a little bit, should wander back to the Old Testament for a moment. In Genesis chapter 1, where it's talking about the creation of humanity. When God creates human beings, what has he said? I created them in my image. And that image was lost in our sin, in our rebellion. But God's plan was what? To restore that image through Jesus Christ. And so now we live out our purpose when what? We reflect the image of Jesus Christ because that's the perfect image of God the Father. God's destiny for your life cannot be thwarted. It cannot be dented. It cannot be changed. Your destiny is written in stone. And that is that you will be like Jesus. Now, there's two elements to being like Jesus. The first is the resurrection of the dead. So when he uses the word glorification in verse 30, that's what he's pointing to. Is he's saying, hey, hey you're going to have that day when you're resurrected. And that's why in verse 29 there it says, so that Jesus would be the firstborn among many. What does it mean to be the firstborn? It means that there's more to come. You're not the firstborn if you're the only one. And so our destiny is to be resurrected just like Jesus. Nothing can steal that away. Absolutely nothing. It's sealed. It's done. The second aspect of being like Jesus is today, here and now, where we're reflecting the image of Jesus Christ. So I want you to turn your Bible with me to kind of help unpack this just a little bit to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. I just want you to see the unity of the Bible and also see that this isn't just me speaking out of my personal thoughts here. Colossians 3.10, our purpose of reflecting the image of Jesus Christ. Colossians 3.10 is coming right at the end of this list of stuff to do, 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 kind of be this type of person. And 3.10, he then he lays it on the line. He says, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. In other words, Paul is saying, hey, right now, here in this life today, before the resurrection, do what? Reflect the image of Jesus Christ. So when you're compassionate, guess what you're doing? You're reflecting the image of Jesus Christ. Turn with me to one other place. Let's look at another one. Romans 13. Sorry to make you hop around here, but it's good, a little bit good to get you moving in your Bible. Romans 13, verse 14. Romans 13, verse 14. Same exact type of scenario. Paul has just said, hey, this is the stuff God wants you to be doing. And he captures it all at the end. Romans 13, 14 says this. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Said a little different way, but the same exact concept of what? reflecting the image of Jesus Christ, being like Jesus. That's God's plan for your life. If you came in here this morning, you're like, I, I want to know what God's plan for my life is. That's God's plan. 
God's plan is for you to be like Jesus. And we will be totally when we're resurrected, but we're also supposed to be pursuing that here today. Let me show you again why, how that works. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So after Romans, there's 1 Corinthians and then 2 Corinthians chapter 3. This is the last time I'll make you jump all over. 2 Corinthians 3.18 kind of lays out the picture now that this expectation that we are going to be becoming like Jesus. 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So what he's saying here is saying, hey, right now you're going to be transformed from, from one degree of glory, in other words, from, from one po- moment of greatness to the next. And then what? Ultimate glorification comes at the resurrection. But Paul's talking to a group of people saying, right now you're being transformed from glory to glory. So right now you're to be reflecting the image of Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is the glory of God. God's plan for your life is for you to be like Jesus. For just a moment, for just a moment, let's forget about the circumstances of our lives. This is almost nearly impossible. I recognize this. But for just a moment, let's not worry about what car we're going to buy. Let's not worry about where we're going to go for lunch. Let's not worry about where we're going to retire. Let's not worry about what we're going to do with our next job. For a moment, let's not worry about circumstances, and let's focus on the character of Jesus. Because God's saying this, my plan for your life is to reflect the character of Jesus in all of those circumstances. So what does it mean to reflect the image of Jesus Christ? To reflect the image of Jesus Christ very simply means to be a reflection of His character his thoughts, and his purposes. So if I'm reflecting the image of Jesus Christ, when I'm making a decision about an issue, I'm trying to understand how does Jesus think about things, and I'm trying to think in that way about stuff. When I'm reflecting the image of Jesus Christ in, in my character and how I treat people, I'm reflecting the image of Jesus Christ when I have priorities that reflect the purposes of Jesus Christ, and I'm living out the plan of God. God's plan is for you to be like Jesus. This is your destiny. This is what you were created for. And guess what? This is enough. This is enough in and of itself to be like Jesus. This is where it gets hard for us because it's like, well, I want a little more. I mean, pastor, come on, you still got to help me decide X, X, Y, and Z here, how to do that. No, 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 guess what? The promise in Romans 8, 29 is this. Your destiny is to be like Jesus, and and that should be enough. I have a little son at home. Uh, Some of you probably know him a little bit. He's about two years old, and we were doing some home remodel projects over the last couple of years. And uh, as we were doing home remodel projects, it's kind of one of those deals where you're trying to get stuff done because, I mean, I'm an efficient construction guy, so I'm trying to, you know, move things, move things along a little bit. But every time we're working on a construction process, the son, our, my son just wants to be a part of it. So what is he? He's just picking up random tools. And what is he doing? 
He's just hitting random walls. It doesn't matter. All he wants is what? He just wants to be a part of it. If all he's doing, he's got a plastic hammer and he's hitting some wall that we're not even working on, guess what? That's enough because he's a part of it. If he's holding a tape measure and he's just holding it like this, but we're actually using a different one to do the measuring, guess what? It's enough because he's a part of it. Is Jesus, being like Jesus, enough for you and I? Or do we have to have certain circumstances in our lives? When God's destiny for us from the beginning of time has been to reflect his character. Now, in the coming weeks, come back. Don't get so upset about the predestination stuff. Come back. Come back in the coming weeks and we'll begin to flesh out, what about that micro stuff? But there's no point in talking about the micro stuff until we've got the picture perfect clear of the macro, which is perfectly clear in God's Word. The macro vision of God for our lives is that we would be like Jesus. And so today, as you're discerning God's will for your life, I want to encourage you to ask yourself two questions. First question is this, how am I displaying the image of Jesus Christ? How am I displaying the image of Jesus Christ? Second question, where am I unsure if I'm displaying the image of Christ? Where am I unsure if I'm displaying the image of Christ? There's no such thing as making a God-honoring decision in an unchristlike manner. You might think, God wanted me to do this. If you go where God wants you to go, but you did it in an unchristlike manner, guess what? You did not follow the plan of God. The right decision does not trump unchristlike behavior. Christlike behavior trumps everything all the time. And so as you discern the different circumstances in your life, and as you go through different circumstances in your life, is your priority to reflect the image of Jesus Christ in all things. God's promise to you is this, that no matter what happens in your life, no matter what bad stuff comes your way, He's going to use that. He's going to work through that to bring about His destiny for your life. And your destiny is to be like King Jesus. That's a pretty cool destiny, to be like King Jesus. How many of us grew up wanting to be like someone? Wanting to be like our dad? Wanting to be like our mom? Wanting to be like Michael Jordan? And guess what? That would have been enough for us, right? At that moment, oh, if you can be like them, that's enough. Well, guess what? Your destiny from God, the creator of the universe, is to be like King Jesus. And that's enough that we pursue that and that we are that. Thanks be to God that in the midst of the bad stuff, he promises to continue to work. Thanks be to God that the bad stuff cannot dent our destiny. Let us pray. Almighty God, 
We acknowledge there's some tough stuff here, God. Help us understand. Give us patience as we reflect upon your word. And so, God, I pray that you give us the ability by the power of your spirit to live in mystery. And also pray, God, that you now would move our hearts and our minds beyond the academic challenge to your heart to reflect the image of your son, Jesus. So, God, I ask that you would make that the desire of our lives this next week, to be like Jesus. This morning, God, we ask that by the power of your spirit, you would clothe us in your character, that you'd make your purposes known to us, that you'd train our mind to think like Christ. So, God, we acknowledge that oftentimes we have not lived out your plan, but now we ask, O Lord, that you'd make your plan a reality here and now in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.